Good morning. Uh, my name's Tim. If we haven't met, uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, uh, please keep it open at that uh, second reading from Luke chapter 24. A few years ago, there was a, uh, a festival uh, in Australia called the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, uh, which sounds fun, doesn't it? I'd love to be at something like that. And I guess you raised the question, what's the most dangerous idea in the world? What has the most potential to change the world, even for the better? Um, and Q&A, which some of you might watch occasionally, got some of the visiting speakers from the festival uh, onto Q&A for one night. And they were asked that question. Uh, the atheist on the panel launched into his most dangerous idea, which was abo- uh, abortion should be mandatory for the next 30 years. That's an interesting idea, isn't it? I'd call that dangerous. Uh, He wanted to reduce population growth. The feminist Jermaine Greer simply said, freedom, that's the most dangerous idea. And then the compere asked Peter Hitchens, who's a uh, British journalist. His, His answer clearly startled everyone. He said, the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead. That's the most dangerous idea you'll ever encounter. Now, the compere didn't see anything dangerous in that idea. He said, why dangerous? Hitchens replied, because it alters the whole of human behaviour and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice and there is hope, and therefore we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It changes everything. If we reject it, it changes us all as well. It is incredibly dangerous. It's why so many people turn against us, against it. Well, Luke finishes his volume one of his uh, story of Jesus with the reality of Jesus' resurrection and a pointer to the significance for the whole world, why it's such a dangerous idea then and now. First, the reality of Jesus' resurrection. The context of this story is that uh, Jesus, on the Friday, has been arrested, tried, crucified, died, and they buried his body. And for most people, that was the end of it. But come Sunday morning, the tomb is empty. Some of the women went and saw it. Peter and John went and saw that. Uh, And later that day, uh, two disciples, not some of the apostles, but others, are walking home to Emmaus outside Jerusalem. And this stranger, as we saw last week, if you were with us, comes and and talks to them. They express their disappointment at at what's happened. And this stranger, who turns out to be Jesus, explains that they should have understood from the Old Testament that the Messiah, God's special king, would need to suffer and then rise. They finally recognise him and they hightail back to Jerusalem to tell the others. that They go to where the other disciples are gathered and they've got rumours as well. They're all excited. And while they're talking, discussing, trying to work out what's actually happened, Jesus stands amongst them and says, verse 36, peace be with you. They're still startled, terrified. They thought they were seeing a ghost, a spirit, which makes sense, doesn't it? Because they knew that Jesus had had died and was buried. They believed that humans are sort of body and spirit. The spirit lives on. And suddenly this Jesus has appeared in the room from nowhere. And what would you think? 
I presume a spirit, a ghost, is a pretty good explanation. But Jesus says, why are you frightened? Verse 38, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See, it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. This body, this person who'd appeared, was solid flesh and bones. They could touch it. They could see it. And in his hands and in his feet, presumably with the nail wounds, still very obvious. But they still have trouble. And so he says to them, uh, verse 41, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. See, spirits don't eat food. You need mouths and teeth and stomachs to eat food. Jesus ate food in front of them. They saw it with their own eyes. What does it tell us? It tells us very clearly, unavoidably, that this is a resurrection. A real physical body was in front of them. It wasn't just a spirit. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't just some feeling the disciples had that maybe somehow Jesus was still present with them in some mysterious, mystical way. Now, this was a real body that they could put their fingers on and touch. And it was the same body that was crucified, not a replacement body, uh, not a reincarnation into some new person. This was the same body of the same Jesus that they'd known for the last few years. And yet, not exactly the same as the crucified body. It had some unusual characteristics. It could appear and disappear at will. In verse 51, it's taken up into heaven somehow translated. That is, it's a real body, but not a merely mortal earthbound body. This is a body fitted for eternity, an immortal body. Now, we don't know much more about Jesus' resurrected body. It's the only sample we've ever had in history. We don't have it here to do some experiments on, but it's clearly the same body and yet transformed to be something different. And this is an unprecedented event. It had never happened before. Yes, Lazarus had died and come back, but he died again. Mere mortal resuscitation. What does it mean? Is it the most dangerous idea in, the all, in all of history? Well, it's not hard to see some of what it might mean because it deconstructs one of the most basic assumptions of every culture, every religion, every worldview that death is the end of this life in some way. Yes, you might come back, but you come back as something else. Your spirit might live on, but it's only your spirit. You may depart and go somewhere else. Maybe you just become nothing. You rot in the grave. But every worldview says that death is that end. And that's why at funerals we go to say goodbye. We don't go to funerals wondering what's going to happen at the funeral. Funerals don't get cancelled. Have you noticed that? They're never cancelled. But Jesus' funeral just got cancelled. That is unprecedented. What could it mean? Well, it means at least that somehow death is not the end. We thought it was. That a hole has been punched in the wall of death. A friend of mine sort of tries to explain it this way. He says, imagine three or four people sitting outside of a, or beside a door on which is written death. 
and they're discussing what's on the other side of death. And somebody says, well, I, I think maybe you come back as a sheep or a cockroach or, 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 or someone important. Another person says, I, I don't think anything happens. You just die and you rot in the grave. And really, they're just all left speculating, aren't they? Because the door is closed. Who knows what's on the other side? But what if somebody opens that door and walks back in through it to your side? Something has changed, hasn't it? That person can tell you what's on the other side of death because they've been there. But more than that, they've opened the door. It's no longer closed. It tells us that the reign of death and therefore the reign of sin and evil has been broken, has been smashed in some sense. The rest of the New Testament talks about it as Jesus' resurrection is the firstborn from among the dead. It's the one who leads the way. There'll be many more resurrections, which means it really is the most dangerous idea, the most dangerous reality in all of history. But for the disciples there, There's a lot of confusion and and misunderstanding. What on earth could it mean? Yes, Jesus is standing there in front of them. Yes, it's it's a physical body, but what's its significance? And so Jesus says to them, beginning verse 44, these are the words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, the the law of Moses, the Torah, the, the, the prophets and the Psalms, were the three sort of divisions of the Old Testament that were common amongst Jews at that time, the same Old Testament we had. He's saying the, all of the Old Testament, every part of it, testifies to me. It must be fulfilled. And they opened their minds to under, understand the Scriptures. He said, thus it's written, the Messiah is to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. If you were with us last week, we explored some of that. I just want to draw attention to this word fulfilled. Everything must be fulfilled. It's a word and idea we don't use much. Because events happen, but when are events a fulfilment? Only when there's a pre-revealed plan and purpose. I guess our word for it probably is something like delivered. The politicians promise to bring down inflation and they've delivered when inflation decreases. They've fulfilled their word. If I invite you to a barbecue at my place, my word is only fulfilled when you come and enjoy a barbecue at my place. See, what this is saying is that Jesus' resurrection is not just some weird anomalous event out of ancient history. There's lots of weird events in history. Do you know that the first person who was killed in the First World War and the last person to be killed in the First World War are buried next to each other in the same cemetery? wasn't planned. It's just one of those coincidences that happen. And weird things do happen. But fulfilled means this is not like that. It's not the vagaries of chance. It's not simply a random event in history. It's part of, in fact, the focus of the clearly articulated plan of God laid out for generations and centuries in the Old Testament scriptures. It's actually the word Luke begins his gospel with. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were eyewitnesses and servants. I decided too, 
after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account so that you, most excellent Theophilus, may know the truth concerning the things which you've been instructed, to know for a certainty what has happened. All of history is purposed by God, but the spotlight here is on Jesus the Messiah. He must suffer and rise from the dead. God's plans came to this fulfilment in the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. So in the Old Testament, God had promised again and again to step into human history, to one day decisively intervene, to fix the mess of evil and suffering and guilt and death once and for all through his Messiah, who would rule over a kingdom in which sin and death have no sway. Fulfilled, says Jesus. Delivered. God has done it. These extraordinary events, the crucifixion of the Messiah, dying our death, paying for our evil, and his resurrection, crushing the power of death, bringing immortality to light. Everything is now different. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of his Messiah, has sprung into existence. So what is left to do? Well, he says in verse 47, Repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Let me try and give you an analogy from the Second World War. Does anybody remember the Second World War? Anybody read of it? You're aware of it, aren't you? The, especially the, the war in Europe, uh, Germany versus the Allies. Two decisive events in that war, uh, at least from the Allied point of view. The first was D-Day. D-Day was the day that troops crossed uh, across the Channel, landed on the beaches of Normandy and started to push back uh, Nazi Germany and her allies. The radios were crackling. Uh, freedom, liberation was being proclaimed. Well, that's sort of like the beginning of Jesus' ministry, announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God, casting out demons, healing the afflicted, dispensing forgiveness. But the second date was V-Day, Victory Day, the day that Berlin falls and Adolf Hitler is dead. Well, that's like Jesus' final battle with the powers of darkness on the cross, where the Bible makes very clear Satan was irreversibly defeated and the place of humanity in God's kingdom was secured. A hole was punched in the wall of death. In terms of World War II, Europe now belonged to the Allies because the decisive battle had been fought, the war was won. The war was won, but it wasn't yet quite over. Now the news of that victory, of V-Day, of the kingdom of allied powers, must be carried to every town and hamlet of the world. And what they're going to talk about is not D-Day, but V-Day, the day of complete victory. And now what's at stake is not the outcome of the war or the existence of the new government, but the destiny of each person to whom that news comes. Will they surrender or resist? Will they destroy themselves in senseless and futile opposition? Well, Jesus says now's the time. He sends his disciples to tell the news of that victory, of his death and resurrection, to go to all the world. And what's at stake now is the destiny of each person as they hear that news that Jesus has conquered death and hell 
and claim sovereignty over every man and woman and child on this planet. And so they're to teach, to preach repentance. Repentance means you turn. You're walking in one direction, you turn around and go in the opposite direction. Whichever kingdom you might have given your allegiance to before you've heard, whether it's just yourself or to money or to different, different gods, then turn around. Paul explains it in First Thessalonians. He said, what happened when you heard this news was you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to, his, and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, uh, whom God raised from the dead. Whatever lifestyle you've adopted, whether it's an ambitious lifestyle or a comfort lifestyle, turn to it to live for Jesus. And it's repentance for the forgiveness of sins. God has declared an amnesty. Rebels who turn are welcomed. The guilty are cleared. The estranged are embraced. And that announcement is to be made to all nations. Because Jesus' death is not for one ethnic group, one class, one gender, but for all peoples in this world. Our first reading, Isaiah 49, puts it this way. It's too small a thing, it's too light a thing for you only to save Jacob, to save Israel. No, you're to be a light to the nations. God's plan has always been to do something much bigger that encompasses the whole world, the whole globe, all nations to receive this salvation, to be called on to repent for the forgiveness of sins. Aussies and Algerians, Austrians and Argentinians, Antiguans and Armenians and Albanians, and we could do the A's and the B's and go all the way through to the Z's. Every single nation, every people, every tribe, every language. To them is to be preached that there's uh, preach repentance and forgiveness. Jesus has appeared, given proof that he's alive. His resurrection is real. Jesus has taught, he's given understanding of its significance. And now he commissions his disciples to go and make this known, to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins, to proclaim it to all nations. And he says, you are witnesses of these things. They're told to speak in his name, that is, not by their own authority, but in Jesus' authority. Because I must admit, personally, I find it quite difficult to call on people to repent. It seems a bit rude and intrusive, even arrogant to say, you should change. I'm telling you. But it's not me who's telling them. It's Jesus. Jesus calls you to repent, not me. If you don't like it, if you're offended by that, take it up with Jesus. I'm just the messenger who's heard and heeded and now is passing on the message. And for those in the room, he calls them witnesses because they could testify to what they had personally seen and touched, the muscle and bone of this body that appeared among them, real bodily life, the nail holes that they saw, that Jesus who had died was the one standing in front of them, the fish that he swallowed. Now, I can't do that. I wasn't a witness. You weren't a witness, I presume. We believe because of their testimony. Uh, Luke said he carefully investigated from those eyewitnesses. He wasn't there either, but he, inv- he interviewed them. He got the story. He made sure it was clear, 
and he has written that down for us. Christianity is not wishful hoping. I'd love there to be something more optimistic than just death. It's the facts of history witnessed by large groups of people. And therefore, it's not dependent on my experience and what's happened to me. I don't believe in the resurrection because Jesus lives in my heart. I believe in it because those who were there have testified. And Jesus goes one step further. Why would you believe these witnesses? Well, Jesus says, I will empower you. I'll send my spirit promised by my father to you and you'll be clothed with power. Now, in one sense, there's a way in which that's true for all Christians. Pentecost comes, the age of the spirit begins as God had predicted in in the Old Testament and all Christians have the spirit not of timidity but of self-control and power and love. But to be witnesses was a special thing. It was only those who were there who saw Jesus who were witnesses. And if you read through the Acts of the Apostles, which you're going to start doing, we find that the witnesses, those who actually saw it, are the ones empowered to do signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. Remember Peter uh, uh, in Acts 3 goes to the temple. He sees a paralyzed man. He says, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. Haven't got money for you, but something much better. God authenticated the testimony of these witnesses so that we would believe them. This is the end of Luke's first volume. I'm glad you can start looking at the second volume. And it tells us some very important and clear things. It tells us especially about God's plan for our times. What is God's agenda for the 21st century? For 2023, for April 2023. Well, it's pretty clear from this passage what the main game is, isn't it? It's not about a better standard of living. It's not about climate action. It's not about national security, even though those are real issues. The big issue, that the agenda that God has put on our plates is to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. Now, I think repentance has gone out of fashion in our culture at the moment, hasn't it? The mantra of our day is affirmation. However people are living, whatever they're doing, whatever they're choosing, they're choosing it, and we are beholden to affirm whatever they've chosen. To repent is the opposite of that, isn't it? It's not affirming. We must affirm or we might cause them some psychological damage which makes sense if the purpose of life is to be yourself. If it's you, do you. Then turning around makes no sense whatsoever. you just got to keep trying different versions of you. you know, the young you, the not-so-young you, the mature you, the old you, the single you, the married you, the married you with kids. But repentance is turning from living for you, whichever you you're doing at the moment. Because to live for me, doing me, is rejecting Christ my maker and my saviour. And so Jesus calls on everyone to repent, to do a U-turn, to stop living for myself, to stop doing me and to recognise, to bow the knee of my life to Jesus as my ruling Lord. It's not me saying to you repent, it's Jesus saying repent. Now if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, if his bones are still in a grave in Jerusalem somewhere, It's pretty foolish to repent. But if Jesus is risen, 
He's been seen. He's ascended to rule on high. Then it's foolish not to repent, isn't it? To go on living as if Jesus is not reigning, not returning, there'll be no day of reckoning, can only end very badly. Can I ask you, have you repented? Has your whole direction of life changed from living for yourself to living under and for Jesus, trusting him? If not, today would be a great day to do it, wouldn't it? 23rd of April, 2023. How do you do it? Well, it's a matter of turning around and telling God you're turning around. Apologise. Ask him to help you to live differently now. And it's for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus died in your place to offer forgiveness to anyone who repents. If you repent, God forgives you. Everything inscribed in your record is washed off cleaned completely, and that changes everything because it means no accusation against you can stand, and that will be true forever. Now, if all this talk of repentance and and forgiveness doesn't make a lot of sense to you, come to Alpha. It'll be great. Register today. Come along to it. Repent and proclaim repentance. It must be preached. I think about my neighbour, John, my other neighbour, Sonia. They haven't got much of a clue that Jesus has paid for their sin, has conquered death. They still live in fear of death. How do you reckon they might come to know that? I doubt they'll figure it out for themselves. They don't know that the war's been won. They're still living as if evil and death will have the last word. They don't know that Jesus calls on them to repent. They assume it's okay to just go on living for themselves. They don't know that forgiveness has been hard won by Christ's death. They just hope somehow they'll be okay. I do need to tell them, don't I? I want to tell them. And I pray that God will give me opportunities and courage to do it. But who will do it in Cottesloe? Who will do it in 2023 to the people who live around here, the Aussies and Chinese and Africans and anyone else who might live here? Will you, with God's help, with the power of the Spirit, proclaim what must be proclaimed, repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Amen.